live from somewhere in zero-page memory, it's a tribute to the Apple II with Steve Wozniak, Bill Gates, Richard Garriott, Bill Budge, and featuring the musical talents of Steve Jobs and the Applied Engineering Band. Well, maybe not so much on those folks, but we do have some very special guests tonight. Vince Friel, Andy Malloy, Peter Neubauer, Antoine Vigneault, and now, here's your host, Ken Gagney, and I'm Mike McGinnis. Hello and welcome to a very special episode of the Open Apple Podcast. It is Wednesday, December 26th, 2012, Boxing Day here in the United States and elsewhere in the world. Since it is toward the end of the calendar year, we survived the Mayan apocalypse, we thought this would be a good opportunity to take a look back at where the Apple II community has been in the past year, how far we've come, and where we're headed in 2013. To do that, we are continuing our annual tradition of a roundtable with the best and brightest stars in the Apple II community. This has been a tradition long held since Ryan Suenaga started it with A2 Unplugged, and we thought this year we'd make the tradition our own by mixing up the cast a bit. We've assembled a colorful crew of characters, and let's get the show started by introducing them. First and foremost, of course, is my co-host, Mike McGinnis. Hi, Mike. Hello, Ken. How are you? I'm fantastic. How are you? Doing all right. Did you have a good Christmas? I survived it, as did my family, so I guess that's the best we can hope for. Excellent. And yourself, sir? Not bad, not bad. Good. So, as you and I previously discussed, there was much contention and debate over who would get to be moderator of this show, and we ultimately decided it should be the person with the highest score in elevator action. Well, that wasn't me, obviously. <laughs> you never stood a chance. <sighs> Sorry. I hate it when that happens. Let's move on to our other guest. We have the ghost in the spreadsheet, Andy Malloy. Hi, I'm Andy Malloy from Syracuse, New York, and I help Ken as an associate editor for JuiceGS, and I'm also on the Kansas Fest organizing committee. And you do a fantastic job in any capacity, Andy. Thanks, Ken. Too kind. So I am here just outside of Boston, Massachusetts. As you said, you're not too far away in Syracuse. Mike is in Denver. Uh, let's go over to the West Coast. I believe we have Peter Neubauer on the line. Hi, Peter. Hello, Ken. I'm most recently near Oregon. I am part of the Kansas Fest planning committee, and I've designed the Kansas Fest logo for the last two years, actually coming up in three years now. I also write for JuiceGS. Yes, you are one of the few people of whom much is expected by being on both the Kansas Fest planning committee and the JuiceGS staff list, Andy and Tony being the other two, of course. Thank you for everything that you do. Thank you. It's a lot of pressure. Not too far from you these days, we have Vince Briel. Hi, Vince. Hey, how are you doing, Ken? I am fantastic. So, Vince, what brings you to the show today? And don't say a phone or a car. Uh, an email invite. So. That too, I suppose. <laughs> no, really. You've, you're Of everybody on the show today, you're the only one who's never been here before. So who the heck are you? Uh, well, I'm Vince of Brio Computers, and I design retro hardware, mostly uh, computer platforms. I like to emulate some of the older computers. Uh, mostly I try and go for the ones that are rare, hard to get, some that people have never seen, and uh, it kind of gets people an idea of what it was like to compute back in the uh, 70s. Fantastic. Some of your well-known products include the Replica One, Apple One, clone. Is, is clone the right word for what that is? Um, yeah, there's different definitions. Um, clone would be a good one. Um, replica, it, however you want to describe it. I, I try not to make uh, my board's or my hardware look exactly like the original uh, for fear out of um, them being mistaken as the real thing and therefore devaluing 
uh, some of the uh, original computers. So if you can't get the real thing, get yep. the real thing. That's it right there. <laughs> and finally, last but not least, farthest away from any one of us on the other side of the ocean, we have Mr. Antoine Vigneau. Hi, Antoine. Hi, Ken. Hi, I'm Antoine so- Vigneau. I am one of the two guys behind Brutal Deluxe Software, a group of French programmers located around Paris. And we had both of you on the show earlier this year for Brutal Deluxe's 20th anniversary. Yeah, that's correct. Wow, amazing. It's just, it's so wonderful to see not only that some of these companies and entities have been around for so long, but that they're still here and that they haven't drifted away. Yeah, that is correct. (laughs) So on today's show, I'm going to be speaking with each of you, asking you in turn what some of your favorite picks are from things that happened or were released this past year and what you might look for in the next year. Last year, we started on the topic of hardware, and that whole section of the podcast was basically a love fest to the CFFA 3000. That card is still in print. In fact, the second run came out in the spring, and they just released a new version of the firmware. But there have been some new products as well that that are vying for the limelight. There is uh, the Super Proto board that Mike Willegal released and which sold out at Kansas Fest 2012. He also brought his Mimeo 1 back into run. There was another run of the rare Ethernet card that puts the Apple IIGS online. And I'm sure that there are some more hardware products in the works. So let's start with Mr. Hardware himself, Mr. Vince. What do you think about the state of the Apple II hardware in the past year? Uh, I think it's progressing right where it should be. Um, I'm going to emphatically state that the CFA 3000 is probably single-handedly the best card ever made for the Apple II. Straight out. But it's not your card. That's okay. <laughs> I can handle that. Uh, Rich is a good friend of mine. Matter of fact, we were speaking this weekend. Uh, he's going through a few cards, so he he's going back through some emails and uh, trying to get a uh, few people who haven't gotten one uh, a card. So if uh, you're on a waiting list, bug him. He has some available. Now, what about the A2 MP3 card? Last year, we were talking to Sheppy about him developing some software to use that basically as a USB interface without disk images. Has there been any new developments and uses of the A2 MP3 card? As of this point, not yet. Um, Both him and I have been pretty busy. Uh, I've been busy with uh, life, (laughs) more or less. It's been kind of hard to work on developing new hardware and stuff right now. And I haven't talked to Eric. Last time I did talk to him, he was... He was pretty wrapped up in stuff. He wasn't going to have any free time for a while. So it's um, it's unofficially on the, on the shelf for right now as far as uh, updating it. But it, it really just needs a programmer to step in and, um, and finish it up. I have all the data that's uh, needed to do the, the software programming for that. Oh, interesting. And you'll share that with anybody who's interested? Sure. Sure. It's um, a, a lot of my work is completely open source. Uh, I like people to uh, learn from what my mistakes and, uh, you know, find some mistakes of my, that I make and, uh, you know, fix things. Great. Well, thank you. Mm-hmm. Uh, let's move on to Mike. What do you have to say about the state of the Apple II hardware? Does it seem to have slowed down in the past year? I think there are fewer new products, um, obviously, that have come out, but uh, the ones that still are available are definitely very exciting. Um, the CFFA 3000. Uh, concluded its second run in November. Those boards are completely sold out, but like Vince said, uh, you can bug, uh, Rich. He's got a few lying around, I think. Uh, there was another run of Ethernet cards earlier in the year. Those, those went very quickly. Um, those always seem to be very popular. 
Why do you think he produces them in such small batches when he seems com- to be consistently selling out of them? He, I mean, I don't think there's any doubt that they're in demand. Well, I I would assume that it would be having to come up with the money up front to pay for the runs. Vince could probably answer that better than I could. Vince? Uh, uh, yeah, it's probably uh, uh, runs. Um, it's, it's hard to um, justify punching out five or ten at a time. Uh, for a lot of people, I keep inventory on hand now, so I can do constant runs of, of boards. But most people who are doing this as a hobby, they they can't justify it. They like to do it all in one big batch. Makes it easier mm-hmm. to do. I see. Hey, anything else to add, Mike? Um, no, I think that's about it. Antoine, what's hardware like over on the other side of the ocean? Anything different that you're seeing that we're not? <laughs> no. <clears throat> I would say that we are very interested in getting what we, what you produce in the USA, like the CFFA 3000, which is to me the iDisc that is finished. And uh, what I would also say that uh, the g- a guy from Japan named uh, Nishida Radio, uh, Koichi Nishida is his real name, has produced a lot of interesting stuff and interesting cards with USB interface for the Apple II. But uh, uh, I think that uh, regarding the A2 MP3 card, what would have been really interesting in the card is to have the sort of identification, a sort of ROM inside the card to make it uh, recognized by uh, GSOS or some sort of Apple II uh, software, which would have been easier to produce software for it. What do you think about that, Vince? Uh, Sheppy. <laughs> as far as uh, GSOS... Uh uh, software that, yeah, that's something that I need, uh, uh, I, I'm a hardware guy. I can do some firmware programming and I can kludge along in uh, assembly and stuff, but to, to, to put out the real useful apps, uh, you need somebody like Sheppy to, or, to step in and, and write the GSOS app for it. And, and absolutely there's a lot of potential there for the uh, MP3 player to do more than just play music. It, it can be a file transfer medium. Uh, you can plug it in. It can read a file. You can send a file to it. You can, you know, uh, take a, a directory look at at the uh, uh, pen drive. So there's potential there. Now, Antoine, what about the SmartPort virtual hard drive? Isn't that being developed by one of your colleagues? Yes, right. The SPVHD for SmartPort virtual hard drive has been developed by Cédric Pelletier, a guy who was living close to me. And uh, this device is an external uh, USB uh, device that is that connects to the smart port of uh, any Apple II that is compatible with that. And uh, it was supposed to be uh, available in 2012, but due to health issues, Cedric was not able to deliver anything but one device, <laughs> which is at home. And... Uh, I had a recent discussion with uh, Cedric about that and uh, is working a lot with some guys from the USA to um, update the the firmware of the card of the device just to make it really available in 2013, especially uh, because he, he believes in some uh, recent discussions or we had on Compsys Apple II like the Unix system of P, uh, P8, and uh, you really believe that this system should be really open and uh, expandable. You would like to add some RAM to the system. You would like everything to be uh, 
really open source, like uh, Vince said, it's very really important today. And uh, he has also improved the uh, the process of of molding and uh, preparing the the uh, external device so that he really believed that in 2012 it will be available or it will be ready to set it. I hope so. Well, great. Well, thank you for that update. Let's see. Peter, what's your hardware like other than solar-powered? I think that the hardware we, we have right now is fantastic. I, too, look forward to the SmartCourt virtual hard drive. Right now I don't have a mass storage solution for my 2C+, and I'm, I've been missing that. Otherwise, I think the state of the hardware is pretty impressive, and I think that the software needs to catch up with where the hardware is. So yeah, it does seem to be the case that software lately has been lagging behind the hardware. I don't know why that would be, but here it is, and now we do need to do some catching up. And finally, Andy, tell me about how your hardware has changed in the past year or how you'd like to see it change. Well, I've been most excited about um, the work that Alex did at KFest with Bluetooth on the Apple II. Um, I think he worked with you, Vince, on, was it using the Apple II MP3 card in order to to do this? But he did some, I guess, proof of concepts and actually um, got some things working. I remember using his logo robot to to draw with a pen, guiding it around the floor on a piece of paper. And if I'm not wrong, I think it was uh, controlling that robot from Apple II GS using Bluetooth. Uh, yeah, that's absolutely it. What we did is we took the MP3 player card and stripped off the MP3 player and just used the serial interface uh, to communicate with the Bluetooth device. And, um, of course, we were using the wrong handshake signal, so it wasn't working. So we spent almost a full day trying to figure it out when it was just one character. And uh, that's the kind of fun you have at KFest at 1 in the morning. And uh, I got up the next morning, and Alex had a big smile on his face, and he gotten Bluetooth to communicate through the Apple II. Um, the, the next stage of what to do with it um, begs the question of making a whole new serial interface type card to Bluetooth or adapting a Bluetooth to connect to a serial interface card. And that's kind of where we're at right now. Um, I don't know what Alex has been up to. I haven't talked to him too much since we got home, but uh, I'm sure he's probably been as busy as I have. Now, that's Alex Lucazzi of Australia, correct? That is correct. Yeah, I'd, I'd love to, if we could get, you know, KFest is the time when there's no other distractions and, and life is on hold outside of KFest. So it would be great if Alex could come back this year and, and, and Vince and, you know, it's all the collaboration that happens at 1 a.m. in the morning that's exciting. So I don't know, maybe we'll see some more this year. <laughs> By the way, where is everybody getting their spare parts nowadays? Reactive Micro and Ultimate Apple II went on hiatus from the Apple II community a year or two ago, and they are still on hiatus. They haven't come back. And I used to patronize both of those shops, and I was eagerly awaiting the VGA cards that they were developing. But they now have a notice up saying, we have no news. Please don't ask us about anything about that card. Does anyone know about either a good source for parts or uh, any VGA cards that are in development? Um, I don't, but I, I was looking at uh, the – they used to sell the Mockingboard clone 
one of the sound cards for the Apple II, and there is an alternate uh, source for that. A guy named Tom Arnold's been producing those. So I don't have one of those. I was thinking of going to Tom this year where, um, you know, I might have tried Reactive Micro in the past. Does Tom have a name for his online business? Mm, I don't think so. I mean, I think you had to email him to inquire about the card. I don't know if he has a website. Okay. Regardless of whatever that contact method is, we'll have a link in the show notes. Anybody else have any recommendations of online vendors besides yourself, Vince? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. uh, no, actually, you know, um, I'll tell you what, Reactive did fill um, a, a void of some of those little odds and ends. And with them um, being on a hiatus right now, it does leave a void. So, Are you talking about just uh, replacement parts or are you talking about new products, Ken? I think I'm speaking primarily about replacement parts like uh, batteries and the like, whatever. I've actually found that uh, eBay, of all places, is, is a pretty good place because you can – obviously the working machines in great order um, are going to go for crazy prices, but you can get some some good deals on, on stuff that's otherwise broken or dirty, missing keys or, or a cover where the board still works and you can strip parts out and move them into your working machines. Oh, great. Sounds like that's a little bit more hands-on than what Reactive Micro used to sell, though. Yeah, it, it does take more effort. You don't just get a nice new chip out of the bag that you can plop in, but if you're willing to work for it, it's out there. And it's probably a more educational experience to do it yourself, too. Sure. Popping the hood. Great. Also, many of those parts come from, it can be had from places like DigiKey, Mouser, or Jameco online. For example, if you need a battery, that part's still manufactured. You can buy it from any of the electronic suppliers. Ah, that's good to know. Thank you. Uh, while we're on the subject of hardware, there's been one piece of hardware that has been tearing up the sales charts in the last year or two, and that is the Apple One. There are only about 50 of these known to exist in the wild from the original batch of 200, I think, and they are showing up at Christie's, at Sotheby's, at on eBay, and other online auction houses. Generally, they sell for nearly as much as a quarter of a million dollars or more. Every now and then, though, they fall flat and don't sell at all. So I would like to start off by talking with Vince, who makes the Replica 1, and ask him, why are these all showing up now, and why are they going for so much? Uh, well, I have to say a large part of the uh, surge in the price has to do with uh, the death of uh, Steve Jobs. I think uh, your Apple nostalgia people have just gone crazy. <laughs> you know, I don't know of any other way. I, when I first uh, started uh, doing my research on the Apple ones and their availability, you know, they, they sold for as high as 50000 and as low as, you know, fifteen, sixteen thousand. 16,000. And to see them hit these numbers right now is just, it's it's crazy. It's it, The bubble's got to burst. It, it just, it has to. Somebody's going to pay way too much for something. How much is too much? Well, I think it'll go back down to the fifty, hundred thousand range. Uh, I don't think it'll ever go way back down to the, you know, uh, 25,000 range. But I, I, 250 is just... Uh, way, way too high, I think. Even though these are being bought necess not necessarily by individual collectors, but sometimes by museum curators? Yeah, I mean, I, I don't know. I, I just don't see this. I, I, I just don't see this value holding. I think once 
um, the nostalgia of the death of Jobs has, has faded. You'll you'll start to see even the prices of Apple twos have skyrocketed, and and I think all that will settle in again. And if you don't mind saying so, do you think that the increased interest in the Apple One has had any positive impact on sales of the replica one? Um, you know, every time there's a story written about an Apple One going on auction or something, I, all of a sudden I'll get this huge site increase, and uh, you know, sometimes it, it generates traffic that you know people, oh, I never saw this guy's computer before, and I, I it does increase uh, my sales. Whenever something like this happens, all of a sudden it's like, okay, here comes the Apple One again. And uh, it's kind of funny because we're coming up on the 10th anniversary this year of the uh, Replica 1. And uh, so I'm going to try and put out something, a a limited edition this year just for that. And uh, it's been, every time I think everybody that wants one's gotten one, it just, it it hits again. Well, great. I look forward to the day when you saturate the market. Yeah, it, it, it may never happen because um, just like with vintage computers, um, you, you get these uh, kids who want to know about these computers back from the 80s. And, and so you get this whole new market of people uh, that come in. Uh, Antoine, I imagine that since there were so few Apple Ones, not many of them made their way to France. Do you see any of this activity impacting uh, the retro computing enthusiasts in your part of the world? No, not at all, but I really agree with what Vince has just said. And I really believe that the death of the job was a part, a responsi- uh, part of responsibility for that. But uh, I think that the prices are right crazy, especially that if it, if one Apple one is sold for half million dollars, you just have then to add the, <laughs> the fee of the auction house. So that I really believe that people, some people are very wealthy to purchase such a thing, but I think it's not an individual purchase, but maybe a museum or some sort of other things. And what, what, what afraids me a little bit, that it's really rare, difficult to have or to make some uh, good uh, purchases now on uh, eBay or other sites because people are aware of the price of uh, the vintage Apple products, so that it's very rare, really difficult to, uh, to, uh, to find something for a, a, a small price. So that I really believe that our activity will become an activity of rich people. All right, Peter, what do you think about all the Apple One activity? Are you saving up your pennies to buy one? I'm still working on saving up my pennies, but if I do save up that many pennies, I think there are more useful, more valuable things to me personally to do with that. I think that the Apple One, I'll call it a craze, is, is great news, but to most retro computing enthusiasts, it's really not relevant. We can never afford it. There are a lot of other fantastic retro projects, both Apple II related and not Apple II related, that can be had for far less. I think for my, what was it, half million dollars, I can have a lot more fun other ways. Now, you said that this is almost irrelevant to us, but do you think that interest in the Apple One has a halo effect on other retro computing platforms? Yeah, that's a good perspective. I I think that the Apple One sales do increase interest in retro computing, do bring a lot of other people back to the hobby, remind a lot of people of of maybe their past work with the Apple II. I think it's a good thing. I think publicity for retro computing is a good thing. I think, though, that once people are into retro computing, the Apple One craze doesn't matter a whole lot if 
if that's if you're interested in the Apple One, you're probably going for something like a replica one or or micro legals, maybe a one recreation. Most of us simply can't afford an Apple One. Unfortunately, I guess we don't get into retro computing for the money. I think the only way that the Apple One sales records are are interesting is what you mentioned, it increases publicity, gets people interested in the hobby, and two, if you have an Apple One to sell. And what about you, Mike? When are you going to cash in on that Apple One you've been sitting on? You mean the three I've been sitting on? No. That's where they went. <laughs> That's right. Yes, I've got all of them. No. I think Peter hit the, the nail on the head there. It's it's interesting from a news standpoint and, and sort of an Apple history standpoint, but I don't actually know a lot of act, currently active Apple II enthusiasts who are just dying to get one of these. We had Jeff Weiss on the show uh a couple of months ago, and, and he kind of had the same attitude. Where well, yeah, it's interesting, but it's, this is not something that I, I want to play with or that I care about. I, I have one of uh, Mike Bullock's brain boards, and it was interesting to poke around with for a little bit, but the, these machines are so limited in, in what they could do that from a practical retro computing standpoint, you're not going to get a lot of use out of these. Finally, Andy, your thoughts on the Apple One? Well, I remember back in 2000, I was at the Vintage Computer Festival 4.0 out in California, and Ray Burrell, who started one of the first computer stores, he bought he brought his Apple One with him to auction off at the event, and it went for 25000 to a person in Japan who called in or emailed. So I think it's come a long way since then. I mean, that's only, you know, 10 years or so ago, and it's already gone from 25 k up to... 350k, 100k. So uh, it certainly has grown a lot, and I totally agree with the job Steve Jobs effect. Um, I think it's important that people can remember if they can't afford the hardware, but if you want to look alike, like Peter said, the Mimeo One is great. If you want fully functional hardware, you go to Vince Briel. If you want an emulator for the Apple One, there's that Palm One Apple emulator. So I think it's um, we've got all the bases covered for those who can't afford the real thing. Thank you. Okay, and on the subject of hardware, for many of us nowadays, we're not using the Apple II on the metal, so to speak. We're emulating it. The platforms on which that emulation is occurring has been moving more and more to mobile and web. We haven't seen an update to Suite 16 in almost a year and a half. It's still one of the premier Apple II emulators for OS X, but by putting it on mobile platforms or on the web, you can access Apple II emulation from more and more places. We have traditional emulators like Apple Win and Virtual 2, uh, emulators like GS Port, Jace, and a variety of ones that I come across on the web in my searches. So this time, let's start where we ended last time. And Andy, what do you think about emulation with the Apple II these days? Where is it coming from and what are we lacking, if anything? Well, I, I was excited to see the those two. I believe they're both relatively new emulators this year. Um, G-Sport, I think it was revived in 2011, but that's uh, keeping Kegs alive, which is the premier 2GS emulator for Windows, which had kind of languished for years. Um, and he added some interesting things like a virtual printer, added Ethernet, Ethernet card emulation. And he also, I thought it was really interesting, was he used code from one of the Commodore 64 emulators, the Vice emulator, to implement in his emulator to help on the Apple II. So I always love um, when those two communities can collaborate like that, even if indirectly, because uh, a lot of times people love to take little pot shots at each other. <laughs> Are you saying that he collaborated with our mortal enemies? 
Hey, I have a Commodore 64 label stuck on my 2GS, so I'm in both clicks. <laughs> Been nice talking to you, Andy. See you next year. Yeah, we, we need to find a new partner, Ken. <laughs> but I, I'd also mention that the JS emulator is is really interesting. You know, it's all Java-based. Um, that's got a lot of updates over this past year, even earlier this month. And I thought it was pretty funny reading that you can basically put a RAM factor card in every single slot and get your memory up to 104 megabytes in an Apple IIe, which um, doesn't have any real purpose, uh, purpose, but I think it's kind of hilarious. <laughs> Very cool. All right. And what about you, Peter? Do you use an actual Apple II in that van of yours, or do you emulate? These days, I mostly, mostly emulate due to space restrictions. I started using Jace when I first heard about that emulator. I was kind of skeptical. We have so many other excellent Apple II emulators. Why do we need another emulator? Uh, though it's turned it turned into something that I'm pretty impressed with. It, active development, hard, uh, support for emulating things like the RAM works, the RAM factor, passport MIDI, Mockingboard, uh, interesting debugger, and what they call MetaCheat built in. I think these are Great new features. I think Jace is well on its way to becoming the first choice for 8-bit Apple II emulation on any platform. I also do use GS port. Um, I haven't used it a whole lot recently, but it's an excellent 2GS emulator. Still, though, Sweet 16, in my opinion, is the best 2GS emulator out there. There's a lot that can be done to GS port to catch up. A lot of it is is user interface whether you use GS port on Windows, Linux, or or Mac, it doesn't look like you expect it to. The user interface is difficult for a new user to get used to to figure out what to do, what keystrokes do what, basic things that you expect like menus aren't there. So I think that with a bit of with a bit of extra love. GS4 can be a lot easier to use for new people coming to the hobby. But it, it's otherwise an excellent emulator. Hmm. Thank you for that recommendation. Now, what about you, Mike? Do you use any any emulation in your household? Um, not really. Uh, personally, I'm still holding out for a working Apple III emulator, but uh, I don't think that's going to happen anytime soon. Um, as far as the Apple II line, I, I, I kind of feel like we're sort of reaching a point where... Um, the products are fairly feature complete, and now we're working on little details here and there, um, and that's great to see. What, what's really interested me a lot recently has been the, um, I guess they're, you would call them a la carte emulators, where they just emulate one thing. You know, you've got the the, the new Eamon Deluxe product that, that's coming out. It's uh, in beta, which basically emulates, because I think it uses the original Eamon file, so it's just emulating Eamon games. And Activision just released that iOS emulator, the, the Lost Treasures of Infocom, where it's it's using the original Z files to play those games on your iPad or your iPhone. That's true. Apple II emulation takes a lot of different shapes and forms nowadays, and it isn't always recognizable as such, but beneath the hood, there it is. And Antoine, what are your feelings about the current state of emulation? I used to be uh, an Apple II um, emulator user with Switch 16 on my uh, Mac. But I have to admit that those titles like Jace or uh, Jsport or KGS were uh, at first really um, led or um, developed for the software emulation 
And this is what I like now with the latest version of JS or Open Emulator, is that they also emulate the hardware. And this is something that is really different from what we had before. And this is what makes me believe that the emulator that we'll get will be really similar to the behavior of the real machine. But uh, until then, until that we have this, this uh, final version that emulates everything well, uh, I am now, I have switched to the real machine <laughs> and I really like to turn on my, uh, <coughs> to switch on my Apple IIGS and uh, the feeling of the keyboard of my Apple IIGS is far better than the one of my Mac OS <laughs> of my MacBook Pro. That's true. There are some things that simply can't be emulated. Yes, that is correct. And finally, Vince, you're a hardware guy, so you must not be using any emulation, right? I never use emulation. No, I'm kidding. Uh, actually, uh, I'm, I you do use emulation sometimes, but it's mostly um, out of ease of use. Uh, I'm sitting at my computer, I'm writing code, and uh, it's easier for me to type code in on a uh, PC and then... Um, uh, take my uh, pen drive and just pop it in my two and run my CFPA three thousand and uh, have it up and running. So uh, it's it, it, with the emulation and the disk emulation now of the CFPA three thousand, it makes transferring programs from your PC over a breeze. So um, I do like to use the actual hardware more, uh, only because I deal with the hardware. And if I'm working with the card, I can't do that with an emulator. Um, but like Antoine said, it, you just can't get the feel of the machine. I, I like the feel of the old machine better than, than I do, um, uh, the, you know, modern keyboards and stuff like that, but I can type easier on those. Mm-hmm. Well, thank you. Well, emulation is for the hardware and whether you're on the metal or on the virtual, none of it's for anything if not for the software. And we've had a bevy of that in the past year. Uh, UNWNF has released ByteBagger, the NDA, just recently, as well as updates to Snap and Safe. We have the Drift demo disc released by Antoine, Melissa Barron, and Daniel Kruzna. Kim Howe has reclassified his Apple IIGS software. As Mike mentioned, Eamon Deluxe 5.0 is coming out. Brill Deluxe is as busy as ever releasing applications for the Apple II and other OSs. And I would like to hear from Mr. Antoine, first and foremost. Do you feel that software development is slowing down or speeding up these days? And what are some of your favorite releases of the past year? <laughs> As I said during the previous uh, <clears throat> podcast, I really believe that we are lacking some good developers in the Apple II platform because we are all lacking time. And uh, we have good engineers like Vince who are releasing great hardware stuff. but. I, I, I don't know how we could motivate people uh, if we don't bring good tools. And the reason why we are developing a sort of an IDE or software development for modern match machines, we won't be able to motivate people to join in and uh, develop develop software for the Apple II, uh, Apple II 8-bit or the 16-bit version of the Apple IIs because... Uh, you can't easily program on a, on a machine which is limited to a screen of 80 characters by 24 lines. It's very difficult when you see what you have uh, with your Macintosh or your PC. So that this is a reason why Olivier is working with his C skills 
the suit of development like uh, window capture or uh, the assembler that is currently developing is uh, let's say at about 50% of his development on it because it would be really easy to press a button and have everything assembled in the <laughs> let's say one second and send to a disk image and tested to a, a version of KGS that would tell you instantly if your code is working properly. Just imagine that on your real computer, especially, even though if you have a, a GPS or a or transwarp accelerator card, you won't be able to have such a speed. And this is what we are lacking. Let's see. Moving on to Peter. Tell me about the state of the Apple II software as you see it out there. I think Antoine is spot on. I think that one of the barriers to writing Apple II software 8 or 16-bit is the lack of good modern tools to do that. Right now, there's a, a pretty large learning curve and then you wind up with the relatively difficult, limited programming environments on a real Apple II or an emulated Apple II. A number of people have started solving pieces of that problem. There's the, there's the Cadius product from Brutal Deluxe that helps manipulating disk images. I'm aware of other projects that also allow writing and creating disk images. That's part of the, that's part of the solution. Uh, several years ago, Kelvin Sherlock partly developed some cross-assembler and cross-linker tools that would allow you to use a modern machine to write QGF software. Last I checked, development on that had died down, and at least for some of the software that I tried, it wasn't far enough along to actually assemble them and link the software there. There's the Woodson project, W-U-D-S-N. It's a head of 8-bit development tools. It's not primarily targeted towards the Apple II, but it does support the Apple II. And it's based on the Eclipse IDE, which is a modern, fairly user-friendly integrated development environment with the goal of your user modern computer, you hit a button, it assembles it, creates a disk image, starts up your emulator, and goes. It doesn't have support for some of the higher level languages like C or Pascal doesn't have 16-bit support. But I think for most aspiring programmers, something like that is the way to go. Install something, type your program in using a familiar editor, hit go, see it run. And right now, there's a lot of steps missing in that, and it's the learning curve difficult. Well, this discussion seems to be taking a turn towards software development. So let me turn to Mike. I think, Mike, you and I are similar in that we're not programmers, but we would someday like to be. Are you hearing a lot of truth in what Peter and Antoine are saying? Yeah, I think so. As a as a uh, lapsed aspiring programmer myself, um, I've wanted to get into to programming and this. It's just with everyday life and schedules and other things that I need to to learn and do, I have to find something that's a simple solution that I can get into rather quickly. Basic isn't powerful enough to really do that much. Uh, 6502 assembly programming is obviously the ultimate goal, uh, but that's a very difficult thing that takes a lot of time to to learn to do properly. So I'm sort of in that boat where it's like, well, where do I start? I don't, I don't even know where to begin with this. 
Uh, well, what have you tried before? I, have you met, tried both AppleSoft and 6502? I have, yeah. Um, 6502 assembly is, like I said, it's it's been something that has I've tried to do, and it's required more time than I can give it. Um, and basically is just, I don't know, it's, it seems like an underpowered solution if you really want to get into programming. Have you seen Brian Peachy's latest games that he's been producing in basic? No. Like, like surf shooter and deadly orbs? Nope. Huh. They're kind of fun. And even, uh, Martin Hay recently came out with Structurus, which was written in basic. Uh, let's see. But, but you're right. The, the ability to implement a vision is limited by basic and sometimes limitations can inspire creativity. But when you're already struggling with the tools to begin with, it may not serve you to work with something so limited. Like in gaming, is it something that I would want to program anyway? Uh, yeah, because you, you're you're not a gamer. I play games. I don't want to program them. Ken, I have to disagree with what you just said um, because this is the reason why I'm still programming on the Apple II. Um, it, it's the machine is really limited. It's expandable in the hardware part, but in the software part, it's really limited. And it is this is what is fun that you have to find the best way to uh, animate things smoothly, etc., etc., because otherwise you won't have fun. And I don't think that Brian Pitchy, when he released his games that are fantastic, but are also compiled just to, g- <laughs> to gain some speed, is that you have to find the best way or to uh, find ways to uh, make something really working well and uh, at a decent speed, because... Uh, you have to bypass the limitations of the machine, and this is what is fun as a programmer's point of view. Well, and that's great when you've been doing that for 30 years, but for somebody who's never programmed, um, that's down the road. I don't even know how to do a simple sort in uh, on my Apple II, and I wouldn't know where to begin to look for that sort of information. Yeah, I agree with both of you. I think uh, the limitations of the Apple II are a lot of fun to work with, and as has also been mentioned before, it creates an environment where it's possible to learn everything eventually, unlike the expansive machines that are being created today. But as Mike said, sometimes that limitation can be a barrier to entry. Once you've entered into that realm, those barriers can be things that you work with, but getting there to start with can be a challenge. Yeah, that's right. Well, I'm glad we're all friends again. (laughs) Watch yourself, Antoine. (laughs) <laughs> you're on warning that's right so. uh, let's see Andy what do you think about have, have you tried your hand at programming no not more than dabbling so I'm more of a user of programs um, but you know I was thinking about 2012 and in the various categories of programs out there and I, I thought we as users really did get something for every category this year, which I was grateful for. And I'm looking through the list and I see for games, we got Martin's Structurist program, you know, brand new. He released that limited edition at K-Fest on floppy disks. Um, we got Death Bounce from Jordan Mechner, which was a game that, Ken, I think you asked him the question at PAX East in Boston earlier in the spring. And he released that game for everybody. It was a really early one he did. Um, in utilities, Brutal Deluxe gave us the, the fish head copier program, which I believe could even go in and, and on damaged di- disks, keep going, keep copying. So if you're trying to get an image and maybe some of the good data is past the bad spot on the disk, perhaps you can still get it. 
Um, then I thought about, you know, other utilities like Safe2, which that was my method before the CFFA for getting software from my Windows machine onto the Apple II, which was to use Ewan's um, FTP program. And I love that he's put out a new version with new features, and I'm going to go back and look at that. Um, and then the last category I thought of was we even got a great demo program this year um, that you mentioned, Ken, the Drift program. And besides it being a collaboration, it was distributed on a floppy disk, which is the way they did in the old days before the Internet. Um, they would distribute these floppy disks through the mail, and it had a custom sleeve that was made to hold the disk. Um, it was a lot of fun, and I just saw that Dagan Brock put out a new KFest demo uh, just a week or so ago. So I, I wonder if the inspiration comes from seeing other people doing it. And I love that this continues, and I think that it's uh, going to happen in 2013 again. I would be happy to help anybody distribute floppy disks through JuiceGS. I don't think I've ever gotten so many compliments on an issue of JuiceGS as the one that included Drift, which is both encouraging to know that they appreciate these bonuses and frustrating that they never say anything about JuiceGS except when it has a floppy disk in it. <laughs> and finally, Vince, let's talk to you about software. What's software? <laughs> <laughs> it's what makes things go. Oh, yeah. Well, um, I think the Apple II has a lot to offer people who are learning um, to program because um, BASIC was uh, prevalent on the Apple II uh, assembly. Uh, learning to program the 6502, I think we could probably come out with some tools. Uh, I, I have a lot of people who buy the uh, Replica 1 to learn how to program the 6502. Uh, I, I think uh, a lot of people take one look at a, a typical uh, uh, book on programming assembly language and go, oh, what is this? And they throw it away and they walk away. And I did the same thing uh, when I was a teenager. After learning BASIC, I wanted to move up into assembly language. I took one look at it and just freaked out. Um, so I think there's room for educational tools and software for uh, students. Um, it, it's, it actually has my head kind of going a little bit of, of why, what we can do to kind of overcome that barrier. Because once you get started and write a simple assembly language program, you're, you're off and running and, and you want to know how to make it do more. And uh, it, it's, uh, it's not as bad as most people think. So. Do you think that learning to program on Apple II is a good path to programming on other machines that might be more commercially viable? Yeah, I think it's absolutely a great platform. Uh, the machines are still low price. You can, well, you used to be able to get a 2E for 20 bucks. Um, you know, you could sit down, hook it up to a TV, and and that was a, you know, with some kind of a PDF file on, on assembly language or basic, you could learn to program, you know. So I still think it's a very low-cost uh uh, means of getting started in programming. So we've talked plenty about software. I want to branch the discussion to software that is appearing on non-Apple II platforms, but which is inspired by Apple II software. And we're seeing a lot of this this year, and a lot of it has been funded by Kickstarter, thanks to Tim Schaefer, who started with the Double Fine Adventure back in February. We're now seeing a new version of Wasteland, a new version of Shadowgate, a new version of Leisure Suit Larry. Uh, and even without Kickstarter, we're seeing the original Load Runner appearing on mobile devices. And I want to know, is this an effort, 
Is this an attempt to cash in on nostalgia? Are people just reviving old franchises and throwing familiar brands on them? Or are these welcome revisitations or even sequels to classic software that we all are happy to see in a new uh, format or a new environment like a tablet? What do you think, Mike? You're the gamer here. Well, I I think part of it probably is a cash-in. Obviously, you don't create a product if you don't want to make money, at least at that scale. I've heard you mention on the other podcasts that a lot of times people are upgrading the graphics and not the gameplay. You just end up with the worst of both worlds. I think that's partly true. A lot of the remakes just kind of suck. Um, but I think that people keep going back to that well because you have, in today's gaming um, culture, so many difficult, complex games that just aren't that much fun. That You, you have to work for everything that you get. And, and people have forgotten how to have fun playing these games. And when you have a game like Loadrunner or, or Choplifter, that's... Um, the simplicity of the, the gameplay, I think, really appeals to people. That's true. We saw another Choplifter for the Xbox earlier this year, and Karateka, or Karateka, just came up for Xbox as well. So a lot of these things are being revisited. What do you think, Andy? I've been to Fun Spot with you. I know you're quite the classic gamer as well. Um, I love when they put out a new version, and at the very least, if I don't like the new version, I want the old one embedded somewhere in there. Like, I would love to play the old Karateka you know, within the new one, if possible. I don't. I loved when the Bard's Tale came out for iOS. Um, well, it was also for Xbox and all that. But they embedded all three of the old original Bard's Tales inside there, so you could go in and play them. Um, I um, I don't tend to support a lot of the new projects unless they've got some link to the past. Um, so that's what really, you know, that's more what I'm going for. I just wish they would, you know, make an Apple II game maybe self-contained and run easily on a new system. And so I could still play the old game, you know, as a self-contained thing without even having to bring up, um, go through the emulator interface. Um, that sort of thing appeals to me. That reminds me of Organ Trail, which came out from Kickstarter earlier this year. It's inspired, obviously, by the Apple II game Oregon Trail, but the new game, Oregon Trail, looks like it could be an Apple II game, and I wonder if somebody could port that. Let's see. Vince, do you play many games on your Apple II or inspired by your Apple II? Uh, I, whenever I get a chance, I like to play some of the old classic games. Um, I, you know, Apple Panic and, oh, gosh, I, I could... Uh, play Choplifter forever. I, I, I think what uh, has happened is you have these phone apps, which um, the games that are successful, um, uh, like Angry Birds, they, they revert back to the game style of the Apple II, which was keep it simple. It's a, it's a no-brainer type game. Uh, you go in and you do simple tasks and as the, the game progresses in levels, it just gets more difficult. And, and when they keep it simple like that, that's when they have a lot of success. Um, I, I see a lot of soul in some of these, uh, phone app games, um, that are, you know, uh, basically taking the essence of the Apple II games and just putting it into a, a phone. And uh, it's the ones that are real good. You can tell that they just kept the gameplay simple and uh, they seem to be the most successful. Peter, I'm sure when you're driving around in your van, you have plenty of time to be playing games, especially on mobile devices, since you are a mobile person. Yes, I, I tend not to play many games either on the Apple II or on modern platforms. I do see a lot of 
value, both monetary to the developers and to people with nostalgia for the games in the modern ports. I think that there's a lot that's still missed, forgotten from the old games. I, the old games are still a lot of fun. I've been two vintage arcades in the last two weeks. One ground control in Portland and a second one named Escapes Me in Eugene, Oregon. They have a lot of older games, fantastic games, just as much fun as today as they were when they were first released. I also went to the Living Computer Museum in Seattle about, about a month and a half ago now, and they have many personal computers, two Apple, two of which are Apple IIs, and almost all of those computers are running a game of some sort. There's a lot of interesting games. They're fun. People remember them fondly. And finally, Antoine, I think mobile developers are encountering a lot of the same limitations that Apple II programmers still encounter because compared to a modern full-fledged desktop machine, there are a lot of barriers and limitations. Do you think that that might be why these mobile games are so evocative of Apple II software? <clears throat> I don't think so. Uh, I... If, if I had to, to talk from um, the way I, I use games, uh, I'm not really a gamer, I'm much <laughs> a game cracker, but w when I play uh, uh, all vintage games on the on the mobile phone, it's more through ActiveGS on iOS, and I hope that we'll have ActiveGS on Android platform as well in the near future. But the, um, as Mike said, what was interesting in those games is the gameplay. And I don't think that having quick starter, uh, Kickstarter to, uh, to gain f more beautiful, uh, pictures or everything else, if that does not change the gameplay, it's really better to play on the uh, emulator on the, on the 8-bit machine like the ActiveGS. It's sufficient and uh, the machine is, 10,000 times more powerful than the Apple II. And uh, it's fun playing some games like Apple Galaxy on, uh, on iOS, but on the ActiveGS, not on the modern, the modern version uh, with uh, more beautiful graphics and uh, stereo sounds, etc. It does not change the gameplay, so that it's safer to play with ActiveGS. Yeah, that sounds similar to what Vince was saying, is mm -hmm. when you strip away the ability to implement high-powered graphics you have to focus on the gameplay because it's all you have left. And so it comes out that much better for it. Yes, I agree with that. All right, let's talk about the Apple II community and the support for it. We've seen a lot of publications arriving on the scene. You wouldn't expect that there'd be much in the way of new periodicals and magazines and books, but yet here we are. We have David Finnegan's new Apple II user's guide, a behemoth of a paperback that came out this summer. We have Kevin Savitz's memoir, Terrible Nerd, which isn't directly about the Apple II, but does feature it. It's in the spirit of Rob O'Hara's Commodore, which came out in 2011. There is also a blog post by Jeff Atwood called I Was a Teenage Hacker, an ebook version of the classic What's Where in the Apple. Steve Wyrick is working on a book version of his Apple II history website. The Apple II was recently featured as part of a cover story in Retro Gamer Magazine, which, which interviewed many members of the Apple II community. Juice GS is being published again in 2013, and Jimmy Mayer continues to rock the history world with his expansive dissertations on gaming and development on the Apple II. So I'd like to hear from Andy. 
to what do you attribute all this new material that's being published about the Apple II, and do you have any favorites? Well, I wonder about uh, people seeing other people do these projects and then deciding that they're going to jump into it, um, that this might be the time. Um, the What's Where in the Apple book, um, when Bill Lubert put that out, he, he tried to do it on Kickstarter, and that was a that's a well-known book in Apple II lore. And he tried Kickstarter. He didn't get enough funding to do it, but... I know I was one of the people that learned about it through Kickstarter, and I may, it may have gone under my radar if he didn't do that. So he at one point put out a call for volunteers for helping to proofread all the memory map tables, which are just huge tables of numbers throughout the book. And that was how I got involved. So I think that sometimes there's a lot of cross-pollination going on. Uh, I think the most impressive product that I saw come out this year was the new Apple II User's Guide. If you're just getting into this subject or if you have been out of it for years, you know, for $25 you can get an 800-page book that really touches on all sections of the Apple II world, hardware and software, basic programming. So that would be my number one um, book for the year. Cool. Thank you. And I think he recently reduced the price on that as well as went into a second edition printing. Oh, very nice. Antoine, do you have any favorite books that have made it to your shores? Yeah, the new Apple II Users Guide by David Finnegan is my favorite as well because uh, uh, <clears throat> last book uh, about uh, the Apple II was probably published 20 years ago or 15 years ago. And uh, the David it did a big surprise to us by publishing that book and especially that it covers all the different versions of the Apple II and this this is really uh, tremendous. I really like that. So thanks to him we've been able to have in one book all the information and let's say the uh, useful and accurate information of the Apple II and that is really, really brilliant. Do you happen to know, Antoine, if there's been any discussion about translating the book into other languages? Oh, no, I've never heard about that. The only reason I ask is because I think I remembered when he announced the book about a year ago, uh -huh. okay. <laughs> the press re the press release was in English and French. Yeah, that is correct, because David speaks French frontly. <laughs> but he hasn't written the book in French, not yet anyway. No, no. Well, that'd be nice. Maybe someday. What about you, Vince? What are you reading these days? Um. Well, I'm revisiting The Hobbit because of the movie. But uh, as oh, far as... Oh, they made a book out of that? <laughs> yeah. Well, before my time, too. <laughs> um, but uh, uh, as far as uh, Apple II side, I haven't had the chance to do uh, much reading lately. But, uh, yeah, the Apple II User's Guide is definitely on my list of uh, uh, books I'd like to get. Just because to have that reference material right there in one book um, makes it so much easier. Because every once in a while, you, you forget something... And, you know, you go thumbing around through all your notes or your ebooks on stuff and it takes you a while to find something where if you have this all in one book like this, it's, uh, it, that's really a useful tool for, a tool for the Apple II user. It seemed to be in demand for sure. When I brought it to Kansas Fest, I had maybe two dozen copies and I went home with none of them. Yeah, I, I didn't get one of those, unfortunately. But you did get one eventually. Uh, not yet. It's, it's on my list. Ah. So I guess Santa didn't put you on his nice list this year? No, I got some kind of black lump of coal. I don't know why. I'm sure you'll find a use for it. <laughs> and what about you, Peter? Do you tuck along some periodicals with, with you on your journeys? 
I do, yes. Right now I have a copy of the new Apple II user's guide, and I also put a vote in for that book. It's I use it primarily as a reference guide. One of these days I'll probably read it cover to cover, but it's it's a big book. I am looking forward to the electronic format of that book simply because it'll take up less variable space that I can then fill with other books. I recently read uh, Terrible Nerd, enjoyed that book, uh, and I did get a copy of the new ebook version of What's Where in the Apple. It's a fantastic reference, a huge amount of information, very nicely done. I haven't spent much time with it though. And of course I read Juice to the S. One thing a lot of those publications you mentioned have in common are that they were all either self-published or published online. I think that the barrier for entry into the world of public, uh, into the world of publishing has certainly been lowered by the increased accessibility to technology and publication tools. Not only did Kevin release his book in paperback and Nook and Kindle, but also even Juice GS, thanks to Mike, recently republished its first 24 issues as PDFs for the first time ever. And those two are available in hard copy. And what about you, Mike? What are you reading? Well, I, I wanted to make a, a minor correction to something that, that Andy said. It, it was Robert Tripp that published um, E. What's Wearing the Apple, not Bill Lubert. Just Bill Bill Lubert wrote the book originally. Uh, Bob Tripp was the, is the guy that owned it was Micro Inc at the time, and now I think it's Flexible Systems. Uh, he was the publisher of the book, and he's the one that that got it republished as uh, an ebook recently, um, just so that we don't step on anyone's toes. Wonderful, thank you. Sure. Um, the new Apple II Users Guide, of course, like everyone else, uh, has been great. I'm not really the target audience, I think, for for that book. I looked through it a few times. It's 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 a neat. Uh, a neat publication. I'm most looking forward to Dr. Steve's uh, History of the Apple II book that he just announced a publisher for on Monday, and I guess it's coming out. It's supposed to come out in April of 2013. Oh, wow. I somehow missed that announcement. That's yep. fantastic. He posted it on his blog uh, on Monday. I see. Yep. Do you think that you'll find much interest in the book even though it's mostly been available online for 20 years? I will. He said that he's re he's reformatting a lot of the text, and there's going to be some new stuff in there that wasn't that's not been published on the website. And uh, um, So, yeah, I'm, I'm looking forward to seeing what he comes up with. Wonderful. Thank you. Another medium in which the Apple II has been well-supported in the form of publishing is podcasting. Mike and I continue to do the Open Apple Show, which you're certainly listening to at this moment, I hope. The Retro Computing Roundtable is alive and well with its three hosts. In fact, they've added a video component so you can now stream the show live and participate in a chat room with them while they're recording. And Carrington claims to be producing new podcasts, an audio version of 1 megahertz and a video version of 8-bit archaeology. So I want to know what you guys think about the audio scene for the Apple II community and if there's room for even more shows and what and how they might distinguish themselves. Uh, who better to start with than Mike? Well, I think the reason Carrington hasn't been uh, publishing Apple II podcasts recently is because I've had his attention tied up in the uh, the vintage arcade game podcast that we do every week. Um, I still listen regularly to uh, RCR and even more uh, or even less related ti uh, titles like um, RetroMacCast. So uh, I think there's a plenty of great content out there, including our show um, and. <laughs> but you bring up a good point, is that the Apple II is almost serving as a springboard for potential podcasters to explore other topics. You and Carrington have gone into classic arcade games. 
I did a limited run on a topic of multiple sclerosis, and sometimes we bring our listeners with us because I know both of those shows I just mentioned had Apple II listeners, even though the shows weren't about the Apple II. How about you, Andy? Well, I love that um, RCR Retrocomputing Roundtable. They uh, Carrington's an Apple II guy, so I I get a lot more Apple II info out of that also. So between that and Open Apple, um, I'm very satisfied with um, Apple II podcasts these days. Do you feel that there's enough of them? No, I I would love to see the eight bit archaeology. Um, I think there is a spot where, like like Mike and Carrington are going in and doing uh, arcade games, is if we could have one that would go in and do, you know, 8-bit Apple II software, whether any type of software, utilities, games. I would love to have people review that, show little videos of it, um, audio or video either. I just love hearing about these things that I sometimes don't know about, and we can obviously still download them and use them on our Apple IIs if we want. One item I'll recommend to you, Andy, is Brian Peachy's YouTube channel. He does a series of video reviews of Apple II games, and it's a fantastic job. He has uh, a wonderful voiceover technique, and the games that he shows are ones that sometimes you've heard of them, and it's nice to revisit them. Sometimes they're brand new ones, and it's you discover something new. And sometimes he's showing off his own games that he's written, as I said earlier, like Surf Shooter or Deadly Orbs or Applesoft Action or Dogfighters of Mars. (laughs) <laughs> Great titles. I, I will have to check that out. <laughs> He's a creative individual, that one. And what about you, Vince? This is your first time on this podcast. Welcome. But you've been on other retro computing podcasts. Uh, yeah, every once in a while I get invited to uh, uh, come on and talk uh, about my products or the Apple II community. And uh, uh, I really uh, it, it enjoy the computer, so it's really easy to talk about this stuff. I I think podcasts in general are really great because, you know, you can just sit back, you can be working, plug in a set of headphones and just listen to what's going on. And every once in a while, somebody will say something that just perks you up. Uh, And uh, there's always something new to be learned. And uh, you don't get that from reading text. You get that from hearing it right from uh, the the audio. So it's... It's uh, they're fun. I don't get to listen to as many as I'd like to. Uh, I'm probably way behind, but uh, um, I I like them in general. And you bring up a good point about the multitasking feature of audio podcasts, which is not something that you can easily get out of a video podcast. Those really demand your attention. Right, right. It's um, it, it, the nice thing about uh, especially like if you're in your car, it, you, you can almost have it like an audio book. You know, if you got to take a trip, you just pop in a podcast and uh, you can listen to it on the road. And uh, it, it, they're really great, especially if you have a series of them you got to catch up on and you got to take a 6,000 mile trip to K-Fest. Uh, it, it makes for some, uh, uh, it keeps your mind focused uh, while you're driving. So I know some people who listen to Open Apple only during the drive to and from Kansas Fest, but they're able to catch up on a whole year's worth of episodes because the drive is so long. Yeah. Yeah. So, so they, they skip it on they skip it on a monthly basis because they know they'll need something to listen to in July. Yeah, it, I, that's a great idea, and that 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 gets you tuned in for the for for K Fest because uh, uh, sometimes uh, you, you get to working with uh, modern hardware or software so much that uh, oh yeah, the Apple II has sat on the shelf and not been used for a while, and you gotta you gotta gear up for the Apple II world, and that's a great way to do it. Yeah, it's a great way to transition your mind for what's about to come. Yeah. Antoine, what do you listen to over there? 
Apart from Apple, Apple, the only podcast that I'm, I've been listening to is not another Apple podcast. And uh, <clears throat> this is the only one I've been listening to. I've never heard of Retrocropedic Roundtable, nor 1 megahertz. And, uh, uh, but I promise that I will check before the end of the year. <laughs> That's right. I forgot to mention not another Apple podcast done by David Grealish. Mike, do you remember who his co-host is? I, it used to be Blake Patterson, right? Yes, right. Uh, yeah, last I heard it was Blake, and then I, I thought they were done publishing. I, I thought they did those three, and that was it, but maybe he's doing it again. Uh, show number three came out in March, and then there was show number four in September, five in October, September, six in October, hmm. and nothing since then. Uh, looks like it's him and Scott Wilsey. Scott Wilsey of pocketsizepodcast.com. I don't know who that is. Me neither. Uh, but he seems to be the host nowadays, actually. And as I said, they haven't done a show in about three months, but maybe they'll uh, get back in the swing of things. Well, you know, Ken, I think uh, Dave Grealish might be busy with... Uh, isn't he doing a, a VCF this year? That's, tr that's true. He's assembling Vintage Computer Festival Southeast 1.0, originally scheduled for February, but now postponed until slightly later in the year to give them more time to put everything together. Well, I, it, it's really not been announced, but we're working on um, trying to do a remote workshop where I could actually be Skyped in and help people while they do uh, a workshop at that, and I can still be sitting at home answering questions and stuff. Well, I think it's now been announced. That's fantastic. <laughs> so, yeah, yeah, we're it's um, uh, it's it's going to be an experiment to see how well this works off uh, works out. It's it's always easier when I'm on site somewhere, but I can't make it out there. So I'm going to try and do a workshop with them remotely. So should be fun. Now, will that be something that people online will be able to watch live? I you know we haven't talked about it. I don't see why people can't join in on the on the Skype uh, if we could have. Uh, uh, two-way channel that everybody could view, that would be great. Then they could see uh, exactly what the workshops are like, um, problems people run into, and the solutions. Especially with David Grealish having done his Retro Computing Roundtable podcast as a Google Hangout that anybody can passively participate in, I think that'd be pretty cool. Yeah, that, 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 uh, that would be really great. Of course, I know Dave would much rather people show up to the workshop or the 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 uh, self festival, but uh, I know I'll, not everybody can get down there. So uh, that I know that was that was one of the concerns we had when we tried doing a live stream from Kansas Fest. If people can watch it from home, will they still want to come to the event? I, yeah, that's a good point. Um, it, you have people that make it from Australia to come out, so. Uh, you know, you got to open it up to uh, anybody in the world can come, but not everybody in the world can come. So, right. Uh, Scheduling, geography, there are so many different obstacles to overcome. Yeah, exactly. All right. And finally, Peter, what do you listen to while you're jamming down the California Highway 1? Lots of podcasts. I enjoy all the podcasts that you just mentioned. I find myself perpetually falling behind on listening to podcasts, reading books, visiting websites, trying out the latest software, writing my own software, but I'm least behind on podcasts because as, as Vince pointed out, they're just so convenient. I can listen to them while I'm driving, listen to them while doing something else. 
I was originally going to comment that I can't think of any unmet needs for podcasts, but then Andy pointed out a lot of areas where an Apple II related podcast could fit. And I think it's just a matter of finding the right perspective, the right story to tell if you're interested in starting a new podcast. And we have 35 years worth of history on Apple II alone. There's still a lot of software to write, still hard work to make, and still a lot to say about that. Great. Well, I hope that everybody listens long enough for us to say it. Let's see. We're nearing the end of the show, although we still have a good chunk to talk about. And let's start with the top stories of 2012, not necessarily just a single piece of hardware or software or any such limited category, but in general, a lot happened this year. We already mentioned the rise of Kickstarter and the software that and hardware that's coming out from it. There was the release of the Raspberry Pi. There was the Prince of Persia source code that Tony Diaz and Jason Scott rescued for Joran Mechner, and which has now been published online, and which has been hacked to make it an imminently easy game to play. Just click on the enemy and he dies. I don't see the fun in that, but it's a nice hack nonetheless. The Age of Reason BBS went offline. There are two Steve Jobs movies in the works. Brutal Deluxe turned 20. The Apple II turned 35. David Finnegan, hot off the success of his new Apple II user's guide, is now offering web hosting for Apple II users at a2hq.com. I'm sure there are many more events that have occurred that I'm overlooking, and we'll be talking about Kansas Fest momentarily as well. But I'd like to hear what are your hits and picks from the past year. Vince. Oh, wow. Put me on the spot, why don't you? Um, gosh. I'm drawing a blank. I, I really am. This past year has been just such a whirlwind of uh, events in my personal life. Uh, man, tough. That's that's a tough call. I'll have to I'll have to defer this if I could. All right. Well, we'll let the other folks answer, and then you can copy the answer you like the best. <laughs> Sounds good. All right. What do you think, uh, Andy? Well, I, I enjoyed the Prince of Persia source code rescue, um, probably the most. It was fun because it, it brought Jordan Mechner seeming like back into a household name as far as the community. Um, I didn't have him as much on my radar before, but here he did, he, you know, released his journals about how he developed the software on the Apple II. He released the old game. He went and spoke at a big gaming conference. Um, and then we got the Wired article. And just to have Tony involved, you know, somebody directly from the Apple II community hauling all the gear out to his house, out to Jordan's house and sitting there and Jason Scott on hand to do all the putting out the story, who's just a fantastic um, resource for getting the word out. Um, that just had something for everybody, I thought. And I thought it was a great event for 2012. Cool. Thank you very much. What do you think, Peter? I agree with Andy. Prince of Persia. Source Code Rescue is a, is a great story. Heard about it, read about it several times, and I, I still enjoy hearing it. Personally, I think the most exciting thing, the most exciting news for the Apple II community is that there is just so much going on. That it's so hard to pick one story or one book or one piece of software. The retro computing community as well as the Apple II community seems to be, seems to be like a snowball. There's Something else that comes out with Bill's enthusiasm motivates other people to think, well, maybe now's the right time for me to, to pursue that idea I, I came up with. And I see that continuing. I see the momentum 
continuing to increase for a while. And I, I look forward to what we see in, in 2013. And what about you, Mike? Well, I think Peter uh, took the words right out of my mouth. For me, it was less any one particular story and just the fact that so many things are continuing to go on in the Apple II community in general. Is It serves as a real source of inspiration for me to continue my efforts uh, in trying to contribute in whatever ways that I can. And Antoine, what do you think about the past year? I agree with Mike's comment. I don't think it, I think that each story is interesting, but uh, what I liked in 2012 is that it showed that the community is still alive, and uh, from the European point of view, we have started to build a sort of a community with German people, with people from the UK, people from Spain, people from other places than France. And I really like that uh, we continue this um, <laughs> growth of community and be able to make a sort of a Parisian fest in our <laughs> Parisian fest in 2013. That'd be fantastic. I think there are enough Apple II users over there that you all could get together and have your own little Kansas fest. Yes, we'd like to. Great. And back to where we started, Vince? Uh, okay, well, I guess the... Uh... The highlight for me for this year would have been KFest and working with the uh, uh, the Bluetooth. It it, it kind of reminded me that even though the Apple itself has remained the same for the last you know, 20 years, that uh, there are new devices out there and there are going to be new devices needed to connect to modernize the Apple II with the uh, uh, with change. And uh, so as new and advanced hardware comes out, there'll be advances to connect that new hardware to the Apple II. Which is so exciting that that is such a living and evolving machine. Yep. Yep. Always. I, I doubt Steve Wozniak predicted any of what we're now doing with the Apple II. Yeah. I, uh, you and I started this podcast, Ken, well, almost two years ago now. And I figured we had maybe five or six months worth of stuff that we'd be able to talk about. And that would be it. And we're, uh, the spreadsheet, you know, we're not doing uh, another January open Apple. This is what's going to do it. But the spreadsheet for February is already full and we're not even into January yet. You never told me you were going to quit after half a year. Well, I didn't want to discourage you. <laughs> well, I'm sorry to have dragged you along so far. <laughs> oh, and I'm so resentful. I can tell. Gee whiz. <laughs> All right. Now, well, Vince brought up a great point about how so much happens at Kansas Fest. And for many of us, it's the pinnacle of our year. I would like to know from each of you, what was your highlight of Kansas Fest 2012, if you didn't already tell us? And most importantly, with the announcement of Randy Wigginton as our keynote speaker, Kansas Fest 2013 is seeming more and more real. We have the dates. They're in the book. I want to know what you're looking forward to about Kansas Fest 2013. Uh, Vince, you can skip the first part since you already segued us into there. So are you going to be at KFest 2013? I am making every effort to be there again this year. Uh, we are trying to fit that into our summer vacation package where I drop the wife off in Cleveland and come on down to, uh, uh, Kansas. Uh, it, it, it's such a great time and, and the people there are, are, uh, just outstanding and it's it's 24 hours of of apple two and 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 anything else i mean um it doesn't have to be apple two related to talk about it um other subjects come up but uh 
it, it, it's such a great time. I you can't even put K Fest into words. Uh, there's just it's it's a whole it, it's evolving into an experience. Every year it's so different. And you bring a lot to the event, and we love having you there. Yeah, I really like coming. I'll tell you what, the uh, workshop I did uh, last year was one of my largest workshops I'd ever put on. We almost have to break it up because just about everybody that goes there participates in the workshops. And uh, it's um, it's so much fun because people get to uh, build something and and. They don't always get that opportunity to build it and to have somebody there. It takes away that fear they might have had of, uh, of soldering. We've had so many people there that have never soldered before. And by the time they walk out of there, they built a full blown computer. That's very empowering. Yeah. And it's rewarding. You know, it, it has nothing to do with, uh, you know, any kind of uh, profit or loss or anything like that. Just that right there makes it all worth it. Although I do want to clarify, when you say it's 24 hours of fun, you mean 24 hours a day a for day. five days. Just, no, just 24 hours total. <laughs> <laughs> like every fifth hour of the event is fun. The rest stink. Oh, there's, there's, you know, there's, there's always going to be somebody there that's got something going on. And, 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 and you don't want to sleep because if you do, you're going to miss something. You know, it's, but uh, eventually your body gives out and you, you crash for a few hours and you get up and you start it all over again for almost a week. It's it's just great. It certainly is. Antoine, we certainly hope to see you at Kansas Fest someday. Yes, thanks. Welcome. <laughs> I don't know when, but welcome. And uh, from my point of view, uh, I f- thanks for organizing such an event. And w- what is really important is uh, that you share all the information with us and that you also have really interesting people as a keynote speaker, and that is very great. And uh, what I'm a little bit jealous of is that you do not share a lot of hardware items with uh, people from outside the <laughs> the um, the Kansas Fest, like the Bluetooth card that I'd like to see one day and uh, some other stuff that uh, we'd like to see released out of the Kansas Fest. Yes, there is a lot that happens there that we need to encourage people to follow through with. There are Hackfest entries that show a lot of potential and promise, which don't necessarily become complete products. Even the A2 MP3 card got us all jazzed up, and there was a year or two wait after that before we got our hands on it. But some things are worth the wait. Yeah, uh, that's, not, that's a way for us to come. <laughs> yes, and since next year is the 25th annual Kansas Fest, there's never been a better time. Mm-hmm. Andy, you're on the planning committee. Tell me about Kansas Fest 2013. Well, with the Disc 2 anniversary, I can tell you that we already have um, a session that's going to take place where somebody is going to come in and show us how to do um, fine-tuning alignments on our drives. Some of these drives, I guess over time, they may uh, lose their alignment, not read disk correctly. So his whole workshop is going to be come in. Uh, you can bring your drive with you. He's going to run through software-based method to tune the drive, and every participant is going to walk away with a copy of this uh, software, which which is freely available, but you'll be able to get your hands on it and learn how to use it right there at Kansas Fest. So I think that, along with Randy Wigington, being the keynote speaker is just, I mean, it's going to be a great start and I know we're going to add a ton more sessions and hopefully we'll get all the old timers back and we'll have a great time. 
I'm sure we will get lots of old-timers as well as lots of newcomers. We have had our Kansas Fest community growing every year for several consecutive years now, and that's due in no small part to people who are coming to their first Kansas Fest ever. Don't you agree, Andy? <laughs> Wholeheartedly, Ken. Thanks. What about you, Mike? Are you going to make the drive out from Denver again? Uh, um, Kansas Fest 2012 was kind of a weird one for me because they, the, not to bring anything down, but the Aurora theater shooting happened during Kansas Fest, and that's that was less than three miles from my house, and I found out about it on Friday morning. And so the rest of Kansas Fest for me was kind of a blur. Um, but there were some really high points, too. Um, we got to have two... Um, keynote speakers in effect that we had we had john romero which that was neat to see but but um randy brand also put on a great session uh, talking about the history of apple works that was really amazing and just spending some time with him he's one of my apple II programming heroes um was uh it was a, a really neat time and and so i'm looking forward to going to 2013 and seeing what that's going to be like great we'll be glad to have you there me too would you would you be willing to have a navigator on board again? Absolutely. What? As long as it's not you. <laughs> Great. <laughs> I nominate Andy. You give me my Everybody likes Andy. I'm kidding. You're welcome on the on the hood of my car anytime. Thanks. Hey, wait a minute. <laughs> and Peter, you're driving all around the country. Will you find yourself in Kansas City next July? Absolutely. Absolutely. I'm unsure if I'll drive or fly, but one way or another, I'll be there. I always look forward to the community connection at Kansas Fest, meeting new people. I always wonder, what, what is your story? Why are you here? What do you have to share? Everybody at Kansas Fest knows something about the Apple II very well, and I always enjoy talking to them, learning from them. Of course, I also look forward to meeting Randy Wigginton. He was there at the earliest days of Apple Computers worked closely with Wozniak and Jobs. He was there at the West Coast Computer Fair when Apple introduced the Disk 2 drive. He worked on uh, DOS, the RWPS routine, AppleSoft. I'm sure he has fantastic stories about that. As I think Andy mentioned, everything at Kansas Fest is there because the attendees volunteer it, because the attendees put on the sessions. So I encourage everybody who attends Candace Fest to put together a session or what, whatever it is you're interested in. I look forward to, to learning about it because in most cases, the person putting on the session is the world's foremost expert on that topic. Did you have any favorite sessions this past summer? I don't remember one particular session. There are so many sessions with fantastic content, different content, different aspects of the Apple II, I can't really pin it down to one. That's a lot of what I like about Kansas Fest is there's so many perspectives. If, if you're listening to one podcast or one blog, there's limited perspectives, limited ideas that can come from that. But at Kansas Fest, there's so many sessions, so many different ideas, and in between the sessions, there's there's wandering the hallways, seeing what people are working on, Apple II related or not, and it's just a a great gathering of the community. I also I also observe that there's a lot of the Apple II community that never comes to Kansas Fest, won't or can't come to Kansas Fest, and 
I look forward to hearing from those people in other ways, such as podcasts, websites, video podcasts, whatever it may be. But the community that Kansas Fest is the hub for is much larger than a lot of people realize. Oh, yes, it certainly is. Well, we are down to the last three topics we'll be discussing, and these are relatively short, but nonetheless important ones. I want to go over some participant picks, and I'd like to hear from each of you if you could plug any Apple II product, peripheral, accessory, publication, etc., whether it came out in the past year, especially if it came out in the past year, but just in general, what would you recommend to the listeners of this podcast? Uh, let's hear from Antoine. Whoa. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, let's limit this to 2012. That'll make it a bit easier. What's your favorite thing from the past year? You, the question is, is that something uh, vintage or something that was uh, sold or built in 2012? Uh, not necessarily a news event, but something that somebody can go out there and get their hands on and either play with or listen to or try or do or attend. Oh, yes, I have one. The the Robo 500, Robo 1000, and the Robo 2000... Uh, one of the earliest joystick in 3D or mouse in 3D that was built for the Apple II and the beginning of uh, the 80s. And um, that uh, item belongs to Paul Lafonta, one of the biggest collector and user of Apple II products in France. And uh, that using that is really terrific because you it's the uh, ancestor of uh, AutoCAD. <laughs> and uh, if you know the solution from Dassault system, which is Katia, which is a way to build drawings in three dimensions, etc. And uh, you just have to imagine that that was already existing for the Apple II in uh, 81 and early 82. And that nothing was invented after, everything was invented at the Apple II, at the beginning of the Apple II. Well, that's quite a piece of history there. Oh, yes. <laughs> Let's see. What about you, Mike? What's your pick for 2012? Uh, mine would be an Apple III. Any particular Apple III? Um, either in an, either the uh, the revised Apple III or the III+. Plus. Now, it's, it's been interesting. Uh, a few Apple II members have actually gone out of their way to pick up uh, the Apple threes and have been playing with them. So I've, I've been able to interact with some, I guess you want to call them new users, to that sort of sub- culture within the Apple II community. That's been a lot of fun. I've enjoyed that. Now, you had mentioned earlier in this podcast that there is no good Apple III emulator. That surprises me. Yeah, for whatever reason, um, th th there's sort of semi-finished code in the MESS emulator, MESS, and um, there is Sarah, but that, that doesn't work very well either. Hmm. Because you have to shake it to make it run. <laughs> That's right. You have to <laughs> drop it on your desk to make it run. <laughs> Oops. All right, so we have the Apple III from Mike. What do we have from Vince? Uh, I'm sorry, could you rephrase, uh, repeat the question? Sorry. Yeah, of all the products that were made available in 2012, hardware, software, podcast, magazines, books, what would you recommend? What What's your favorite? Uh, well, for the Apple II, uh, I would have to say the CFFA 3000, you know, um, that uh, I, I was fortunate when Rich came out with that product or was thinking of developing that product to um, plant a lot of 
my wishes of what I wanted to see out of that card into him uh, with disc emulation and, and, and other features. Um, and that, that card has just changed it, just the way my Apple II sits on my desk right now. I don't have disk drives hooked up to it. Um, I, I have a USB cable sitting out of it that I can just plug in a pen drive with whatever programs I want to run on it. Um, so that, that Apple II hardware is my favorite. Uh, the re-release of the Mimeo is, uh, probably second. I think Mike's, uh, Mike's just an artist on the board work on that. Uh, uh, he left no, uh, stone unturned when he came down to the, the detailing, uh, of that board. It's just, uh, it's just beautiful work. So, uh, those are the, uh, my two favorite things of the year. Excellent. Thank you. What about you, Andy? Um, I'd have to go with, let's see, in 2012, uh, Melissa Barron, she did a bunch of art prints based on her Oregon Trail hacks that she presented at K-Fest in, I think, 2011. So at the time, you know, she had these weavings that she came and showed us, but there was no way to get one of those. Those were one of a kind. But so she screen printed a bunch of these screens onto uh, special paper. They're all small size, and she sells them on her Etsy store. And I picked up a bunch of them there, and I think they're great little Apple II artwork things that can be hung on the wall. And I think they're limited, so people should run over there and get them before they run out. <laughs> great, yes. Melissa does do some amazing work. It's such a unique interpretation of the Apple II that she's offered us. And finally, Peter. Hardware-wise, I agree with Vince. The CFFA 3000 is one of the most useful hardware additions that we've seen for the Apple II in a long time. I Software-wise, a lot of interesting software. Nothing blew me away enough to make my to make my pick list. I, I think there's, as I said, a lot of great things, a lot of potential still remaining there. I do want to point out the Living Computer Museum in Seattle. At, that just opened in October, so I, I think this is my participant pick. What's unique about this museum is that all the computers are operational. Most museums you go to, you can't touch the computers. The computers don't run. They're locked away somewhere far away from you. But at the Living Computer Museum, almost everything is either running or being restored. And I think the value to an Apple II user there is seeing the Apple II in the much larger historical context. Apple II is an important step, but it's just one tiny step in the evolution of computers. Cool, yes. I read your article about the Living Computer Museum in the latest issue of JuiceGS, and it sounds like a place that everybody should visit if they are given the opportunity. All right, so we've reviewed our favorite picks from 2012, and let's look forward to 2013. If you could express one hope for what should happen in 2013 or one prediction of something you think will happen in 2013... What would that one thing be? Andy? Hmm. I'm not sure it'll happen 2013, but I'd love to see some sort of wireless uh, tech brought over to the Apple II. So whether it's Bluetooth, whether um, some other type of wireless tech could ever get in there, but I think that would be an amazing new way to get stuff from your PC or Mac over to the Apple II. That's what the iDisk did. Correct. Ooh. Ah. 
Oh, that's true. That came out a few years ago, didn't it? Yeah, and it's no longer available, so I don't know if that really counts. But it did have Bluetooth, and it did work. Hmm. Did it work well? The Bluetooth portion did. Ah. Maybe if that makes a comeback, that would satisfy my... Because uh, <laughs> I missed it the first time around. <laughs> Let's see, and since Mike chimed in, let's hear your prediction or hope. My biggest hope would be for either the return of a reactive micro or a store like it. Yes, that would be wonderful. Do you think there's any chance that Henry will return to us? I doubt it, but, you know, I hold out hope. It, it would just be nice to have an, uh, an all-in-one storefront where you could you could get that stuff again. I mean, uh, uh, Henry was certainly a friend to the community, and as far as I know, we parted on good terms. It's just that he had a new opportunity he needed the time to pursue. And so on one hand, I hope that pursuit proves fruitful for him. On the other hand, if it fails, maybe he'll come back to us. Vince, what are you hoping for in 2013? Well, uh, I'm uh, I'm hoping that um, I can actually spend more time working with hardware I have development. Um, over the last year, my development time has been down to almost nothing. Uh, I have a um, Bluetooth dongle sitting on my uh, workbench that sat there since the day I ordered it, still in the uh, uh, protective bag. Um, it, I'd like to uh, get started on that. That's uh, something I'd like to see happen. Uh, Bluetooth is really a simple technology to integrate into the Apple II. It, it just requires a little bit of time, and uh, we can get that completely functional, where you can, instead of having a serial cable, you can be Bluetooth. And that will... From what I got from KFest was a, a lot of demand for that because um, it, it frees up the space to have to run your Apple uh, with a cable somewhere, and you can then have your Apple II anywhere in, in a room. So I'd like to see that happen for me personally. Uh, as far as software, I'd uh, like to see some more uh, development on tools and, and uh, things like that. I think uh, we're getting a lot of uh, uh, people who have never used an Apple are starting to buy Apples and learn on them. So I'd, I'd like to see more tools on uh, programming and stuff like that. That's always useful. Great. And as far as development tools go, I should have brought this up when we were doing our participants' picks, but I would like to recommend all the various utilities that Martin Hay and Ivan Drucker have released, uh, Naked OS and Magic GoSub, Slammer, New Input. The two of them have individually released an impressive number of tools, and I don't know if they're being utilized. I don't know if they're really being exploited to the extent that they could be. Uh, Peter, what are your hopes slash predictions for the next year? My personal hope is that I'm able to write some more software, both 8 and 16-bit, for the community, my hope is that we see a easier barrier to entry to programming, particularly for the 16-bit machines. And I, I think the right direction for that is what Anton described earlier with cross-development tools. We can take advantage of the fast, familiar, modern machines to help us create Apple II software much more quickly with much less specialized knowledge. And I think we're we're seeing bits of that. We're seeing pieces of that, which I mentioned earlier. Great. Well, I hope that we continue to progress down that path. 
And finally, Antoine. Uh, I have several hopes for 2013. First of all is to be able to meet other people from Europe. The second one is to see the unrealized games visible, like SimCityJS, be able to distribute them. I like uh, also that Syndicom and Reactive Micro came back to life or uh, be or merge or uh, let's have a, a, a unique way or a portal to order stuff, either hardware or software or manuals related. I also like that we see the what I call the MPW for Windows. This is the idea that Olivier is currently developing. Uh, be more visible in 2013. And uh, as far as the hardware part is concerned, I'd like to see three things. The first one is I'd like to order two Bluetooth cards from Vince. <laughs> 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 the second one is I'd like to, to see a FM radio card for the Apple II, despite the fact that I know that nobody would like to have one. But I really like to <laughs> to be able to listen to be to listen to some music from my Apple II, and the last one I know that it is a current project from some guy, but I can't recall his name, is uh, being able to connect this to drive to a USB interface on a modern machine. I like what David Schmidt does with uh, ADT Pro, which is a fantastic software. But I like to be able to connect my disk to drive directly to my Macintosh and be able to uh, save all bytes and uh, in the uh, EDD form or Nibble form or uh, disk image form directly from my PC or my uh, Macintosh without any uh, Apple II uh, software. Wow, that would be quite a feat. I would like to see that in 2013 as well. If I'm allowed to have a hope or prediction, I would have that be twofold. One is Charles Mangan, who you may recall from having put a Mac Mini in a Disk 2 case. I've known him to be working on something for the Apple II that involves USB, and I hope that he'll have something to show us. He's talked about coming to Kansas Fest, and that's my other hope, is that we'll continue to have more newcomers, as well as some people that we only know as online entities, Charles Mangan, Kevin Savage, they both express interest in coming to Kansas Fest. And I would love to meet for the first time these old friends. And that pretty much wraps up our end-of-year roundtable. But before we sign off, I'd like to give everybody the opportunity to fire a parting shot. If you have anything else to say or add, any message to the community, it doesn't have to be a plug or a promotion, though it certainly can be. Just anything that you want to uh, share with our listeners before we sign off. Andy? Um, I'd just like to wish everybody well in the community and hope that uh, one of the resolutions would be to get involved somehow, whether it's participating, even doing comments back towards the podcast or coming to KFest or participating in the Usenet groups. Um, I think we can all just raise our voice a little bit and it'll just um, buoy the whole community, I think, when we're supported by each other. That's very true. Thank you. Peter? Yes, thank you to everybody in the community for making everything possible. And I look forward to collaborating with more people, more groups. The retro computing community is much larger than just the applicants. That's a great perspective. Thank you. Antoine. Yes, I'd like to, to thank you, Ken and Mike, for uh, the, open, the Open Apple podcast and uh, for what you do to the community. Uh, and I also like to, to thank other people who are participating, like Michael Mahon and other people. 
But I also like you to speak or to learn French a little bit <laughs> because it's difficult at the end of the day <laughs> to speak English. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know that you're going to have much luck there. I, I'm not uh, much in the way of foreign tongues. Mike, are you any good at that? Uh, I used to be able to speak some conversational French, but it's been 20 years since I've practiced, so probably be a oh. bit rusty. Well, put down the assembly book and pick up French. <laughs> Indeed, I will. <laughs> well, what about you, Vince? Um, well, I would just like to um, uh, see more people uh, getting involved in uh, the uh, online forums and discussions and um, raise more um, questions about what they'd like to see done or created or... Um, just input on on those type of things. As far as uh, hardware creation goes, um, sometimes I, I make things because I want it. Um, every once in a while, I've designed hardware because of the overwhelming community asked for it. So uh, your your voice does matter in those things. So uh, more people online voicing their opinion really helps. Is there any particular place you recommend they do that? Because the community can be somewhat fractured with all these outlets. Yeah, there's 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 a lot of uh, places you can go. At, at the thing is, um, uh, like even my site has a forum, or there's there's the vintage computer forums, or um, I, gosh, I don't go on any of the news groups anymore. But uh, just go on to those places and and talk, get out, and be involved, uh, give your opinions on things. And, um, believe it or not, um, that there's people out there that can, that can make a difference that will hear. So just get involved and, um, it, it, it helps the community. Great. Thank you. And finally, my esteemed co-host, Mike. I just like to say retro compute. Oh, wait, sorry. That's the, that's <laughs> the wrong podcast. Uh, Apple II forever, everybody. <laughs> well, thank you, and I think that's a wonderful note on which to end the show. I want to thank all our participants, Annie Malloy, Antoine Vignal, Peter Neubauer, Vince Briel, and, of course, Mike McGinnis, for participating in this annual tradition of the Open Apple Podcast. It's a, a wonderful feeling to be a member of a community that has so many friendly and supportive faces that we can get together with, whether it's in the online media, like Vince suggested, at Kansas Fest, as Andy and Peter put together, or on a podcast like Mike and I do, or just interpersonally, whether it's on Facebook, Google+, Xbox Live, or whatever. I want to thank each of you for being a part of that community and for making it a community. And remember, in 2013, Apple II forever. This has been the Open Apple Podcast. Find more episodes, read our blog, or send feedback by visiting us on the web at www.open-apple.net. Um, I just want to say I am sorry for screwing up Robert Tripp's name. Mike, I am so glad you caught that, and I hope we don't offend Robert. <laughs> very bad, very bad. <laughs>